If you uh, have your Bibles with you, open to Ephesians chapter 6, as Rick has already alluded to. Um, Rick didn't know I was preaching out of Ephesians 6 until like two minutes before the service started. Uh, And so all the commentary that Rick has already given on Ephesians 6 is from that well that he spoke of a minute ago. Um, And I felt like Rick should just kept going and finished preaching the sermon from Ephesians 6, listened to his prayer on the armor of God and... We'll certainly hit upon that this morning. Well, our aim this morning before we dive straight into Ephesians 6 is this. We want God's word this morning to help us live upon the strength of the Lord, both in our love to the saints and our fight against the enemy. We want God's word to help us live upon the strength of the Lord, both in our love to the saints and in our fight against the enemy. Well, let me pray and then we'll dive right into Ephesians 6. Father, we pray very simply this morning that you would open our eyes that we would see wonderful things in your word. And Father, we ask that your gospel come this morning, not only in words, but also in power, with the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you will, Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to read the first 20 verses. We'll spend most of our time in 10 through 20, but I want to set a little bit of the background and we'll actually look at the the whole book. We'll do a really fast overview to help us get into what is it that Paul is communicating uh, exactly in Ephesians chapter 6. So if you will, Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, Grace Church, hear the word of the Lord. Children. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will render service, as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same to them and give up threatening knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness, in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God 
to, so that you will be able to rest, excuse me, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of God for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Today, we're obviously stepping out of the series uh, through the book of John, Believe and Live. And we're gonna take a break and just look briefly at Ephesians today. Let me communicate that the motivation behind preaching Ephesians 6 is that I believe Paul gives tremendous instruction to his saints regarding how we ought to live. And I believe that he does so with an acute awareness of the schemes of the devil. To say that another way, because God knows how the enemy will attack his people, he gives very pointed help to not only endure, but to be victorious. The quick and simple overview of Ephesians is this. This is very general, right? So there's overlap. It's not going to break down so cleanly as I'm about to state. But the first two chapters of Ephesians are theology. Paul's teaching truth. He's just laying out gospel truth. And then chapter three is this unique uh, prayer that doesn't exist in all of Paul's letters. Almost all of his letters have theology and application, theology and application. But Ephesians, Ephesians is unique because nestled in the middle of this theology and prayer is, I mean, theology and application is this prayer. So chapter three is a prayer and then chapter four through six is application. One and two, theology, chapter three, prayer, chapters four through six, application. We'll spend the majority of our time in application portion of the book, in particular chapter six, which I just read a few minutes ago. But I want us to dip into the theology and prayer so that it sheds light on the application in chapter six. First, I want you to see the theology. Really, there there are two main theological themes in Ephesians and without looking at specific verses, let me just give those to you and then on your own time, Lord willing, you can just soak in Ephesians one and two. But there's two major theological themes that Paul teaches in the first two chapters, that Christ has reconciled all creation to himself and God. And then number two, that Christ has united people from all nations to himself and to one another in his church. That's what you're going to find in the first two chapters of Ephesians. And if we wanted to dig a little under the surface, under those two main theological categories that I just gave, we'll see that all people in Ephesians chapters one and two, all people by nature are spiritually dead. They disobey God's law and they're ruled by Satan. Even if they don't know it, that's what's happening. God predestined his people to redemption and holiness in Christ. God had a plan to save his people and to live holy lives. 
We'll also find in those first couple of chapters that God is rich in mercy. So even though we're, we're God haters, we're spiritually dead, we're ruled by Satan, God is rich in mercy in Christ and he saves sinners through a free gift that he gives to us. By grace through faith alone are you saved. And Jesus' saving work was part of the redeeming of fallen creation for God. For this, he deserves, because Christ accomplished all this, he deserves all glory and honor and authority in the, not only this age, but the one to come. And that Jesus, in saving sinners, saves sinners globally. Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He, and he unites Jews and Gentiles into one body, the church. And he says, we're a new creation. All that in the first couple of chapters. And then he spills all that good theology into this really heartfelt, rich prayer for the saints in Ephesus. And this is what he says in Ephesians chapter three, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Well, that's, there's a lot there, and I'm not going to try to unpack that this morning. But I do want to draw your attention to two phrases in that prayer that really sum up what he's communicating there. And they both are so that phrases. He says, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus. He wants Christ to dwell in their hearts through faith. That he's not just talking about saving faith, but he's talking about sanctifying faith. That Christ in a sanctifying way would dwell in your hearts through faith. So the same faith that's required to save us is still required for our sanctification. So that's his prayer. He's writing to believers. So he's talking about sanctification here. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith in a sanctifying way. And then the second thing is he says that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Well, again, I could spend a lot of time unpacking that phrase to be filled up to all the fullness of God. He wants you to have as much of God as you could possibly imagine. Those are big prayers of faith for the saints in Ephesus that certainly echo through history and are meant for us today. So that prayer is not just what Paul would pray for the church in Ephesus, but if he knew us today, he would be praying that for us. And we should be praying that for one another. We should pray that for the saints of this church. In short, this great prayer and hope is that Christ will fill us up with himself. And so it spills over from theology to this prayer to application. If all that theology is true and Paul is praying that God would do this, then what's the result of that? And that's the application that we find. And there's really one overarching application to all that rich theology that Paul expounds on in this letter and as an answer to his prayer. But we want to dig into it a little bit. Christ's people are saved, listen to this, to live new lives of holiness. He doesn't save us so that we go on living life for self as if God doesn't exist. That's not what he 
has saved us for. Holiness in life includes submission to proper authorities, which he gets into in the text, in home, in family life, at the workplace. But more importantly, not just submission to authority, but for those in authority, he's given us a call to care for those that are in submission. And that's so much more important than the other side of the coin, and we'll get into that. But he's also given us powerful gifts within his church to bring about unity and maturity and to defend against the schemes of the devil. All that's going to play out in this application that we look at. In the text, if we look at chapter 6 and we see those words that he gives us in verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Well, that's clearly preceded by something. If this is the final word, what all has preceded up until this point that Paul wants us to give our attention to? And so I want to point, point out in application, we'll, we'll drop all the way back into chapter four and we'll push through chapter six. Really four major pieces of application to the theology that he teaches. All right, so four pieces of application that we really want to hone in on. Four commands with an overview of the theology and prayer in mind. Let's look more closely at the application part of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. He says this in chapter four, verse one. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So here's the command. That's an imperative, right? He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. He's putting the onus of the action on us. We must do something as a result of Christ's redeeming work in our life. You're required, you're responsible to respond. There has to be actions as a result of that. And the first one that he gives us, we find in chapter four is walk in a worthy manner. We're employed to walk in a worthy manner or to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. What is that calling? What is the calling that God has put on our life? The call is a call to live in the, in the light of our salvation. Sometimes the old theologians use phrases like the effectual call of God. Living in such a way that gives evidence of your love to Christ and his church. And listen to me, you can't separate those two. You can't love God and not his church. Or let me be even more particular. You can't love God and dislike one person in his church. It's impossible. Those two don't go hand in hand. You must love God and his people. So how are we instructed to walk? If walk, walking according to our calling means that we must love God and his church, well, how are we instructed to walk? What does that look like? Paul gives us a ton of evidence of that in Ephesians. In Ephesians 2, 2, he says that our walk, he's talking about walking in Ephesians 2 in a new way, not like this world. We don't, like, we don't walk like the world walks. We walk in a new way. That's how you walk. Or 2.10, you walk in good works. You see to it that you're doing good to all men. Or in 4.1 that we just looked at, he says, in a manner worthy, and then he expounds on that in humility, in gentleness, in patience, in tolerance, in love with one another. Go look at it. Look what follows in chapter 4 after he tells us to work, walk in a worthy manner. 
humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance, love. Does that describe you? Or let me ask it a better way. Would other people describe you that way? 417 says, this is the way we walk with our mindset on the spirit in truth. And then there's more fruit that comes from that. He says, be kind, be tenderhearted, be forgiving. Are those the marks of your life? Tenderheartedness? Kindness? Forgiveness? Is that the mark of your life? Are you walking in love? 5-2. Or 5-8, as children of light. Or 5-15, in wisdom. Is that how you're walking? Paul makes it really clear in his letter how we are to walk. And then we're given the walk, the walking instructions for particular groups. He, he gets so specific in his application. And he gives us three, three groups or three pairs uh, of people that he addresses in his application. Wives and husbands. So how, how are we to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel in the way that wives and husbands relate to one another? Or children and fathers, parents, slaves and masters. So there's three pairs there. Wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. And all these instructions are for individual groups, but it should come as no surprise that these groups are, again, paired in relationships. It's not by accident that on all of the sets of instructions, the superior is dressed, is addressed second. I'm not downplaying the instruction of wives as opposed to husbands or children as opposed to husbands. All the application is applicable. It applies. And whatever boat you fall in, you ought to heed God's word. But in these pairs, the emphasis always lands on the second of the addressed. So rather than wives, the emphasis lands on the husband. And rather than the children, it lands on the parents. And rather than the slave, it lands on the master. So what do I mean by that? The greater responsibility is on the superior. It, it is essential for the superior to humbly walk in love and obedience or the relationship unravels. It unravels. The healthiest marriages are not the ones where wives walk in submission, though they should certainly endeavor by God's grace to do so, but rather the healthiest marriages are the ones where the husband loves his wife in gentleness, humility, and grace. You want to see a healthy marriage? Look there. Is, is that true of the husband? The children who seem to flourish are not the ones ruled by an iron fist, but brought along to maturity by patience and love from their parents. The best employers that we all want to work for are the employers who humbly and sacrificially lead their company by example, by hard work, not by browbeating their workers. In every relationship, we must, like our superior Christ before us, humble ourselves in all humility. What did Christ's humility do for us? He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is our salvation. If our superior is not humble, there's no hope for salvation. There are more walking instructions for the saints of God, according to Ephesians. We're to walk in subjection, in love. He tells husbands that we ought to sanctify, nourish, and cherish our wives. We're to walk in obedience. We ought to walk as parents with gentleness, non-provoking. We ought to bring up our children, build them up with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ. 
and we're to walk with kindness. We're not to be threatening to those around us. Is that your posture? Are people threatened by you? Saints, I'm not sure if you're listening to the heart of God, to his saints in Ephesus through Paul's letter, but God cares very deeply about how they walk. It matters. He cares that we live with one another in such a way that exemplifies that we love what he loves the way he loves. So let me ask again, do you love all the saints of God at Grace Church? Or do you have a set of folks that you just have to put aside? Or maybe a better way to ask it is, do all the saints of Grace Church know that you love them? Sometimes asking ourselves these questions where we survey ourselves, we, we like to answer in a way that makes ourselves look good. So maybe the better question is, does everybody in the church know that you love them? Would anyone here have doubts that you love them because of the way that you speak to them or treat them or perhaps the way that you relate to them or don't relate to them? God cares that we love the unity of the church and work hard to preserve it. God cares that we build one another up to maturity in Christian faith and he certainly cares about the manner in which we do so. It's not just what you do, but how you do it. It's not just truth, but it's truth in love. Please do not separate those two. You cannot love somebody with truth if you're not loving them with the truth in love. If Matt were still preaching today, John chapter 13, 31 through 38, he would have mentioned verses 34 and 35 that say this, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. One of the clearest gospel proclamations that the church makes every single day is not verbal, though that's certainly necessary but it's our treatment of one another. It is a gospel proclamation to love your brother and sister in this room. It's a gospel proclamation. You're failing to preach the gospel if you don't love the saints of God. Jesus' commandment to love one another is not generic or vague, but in Ephesians 5 and 6, the call to walk in a manner worthy is a call to humble yourself to be long-suffering, to be tender, to be understanding, to be patient, to seek to build one another up in gentleness. So let me join Paul in calling us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. The second thing that I want us to see, the second command that he gives us is found there in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. And this is where we, where we really want to dig in. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Well, you know far better than I, especially if you've been at Grace Church for a few years, you have all that under your belt, that relationships and ministry are hard. We're going to fail each other. We're going to disappoint one another. We're going to make mistakes. 
listen, we are going to sin against one another. It's going to happen. It's part of doing life together. It's part of being a church. And perhaps you're even experiencing a wave of that difficulty in your life right now. We have to look no farther than Paul's letters to discern what life as a church member will be like. I mean, just read Paul's letters and you see all the turmoil and sin and mess that is the church. And here at the end of Ephesians, Paul is prepping the Ephesians for reality. It's not all easy. Just because we say that we love God, that doesn't make everything just automatically fit together and work. It requires effort. It requires labor. You must be, according to the text, strong because it won't be easy. It's exactly what Paul's telling them. You will be tested. Listen to this. You will be tried and you will be wounded. And you must press on. Well, that's an easy thing to say from the pulpit when you don't know all the details of somebody's life. Press on. That would be terrible advice. That would be awful thoughtless of me if that's what I proclaim from the pulpit without knowing the details of your life. So how are we called to press on in difficult circumstances? Where do I find the inner strength to endure? See, that that press on command would be thoughtless if it wasn't biblical. It would be thoughtless if there wasn't a way for you to endure behind the press on command. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Our strength, according to God's word, is not our own. It is the strength of his might. Our strength is in the infinite, omnipotent power of the Lord. Not to call down from heaven when we want to zap our foes. It's not like, God, you have all the power and they're bothering me, so get them. That's not how it works. That's not what we're talking about right now. We're talking about Enduring under the daily pressures of this world, under the daily attacks of the evil one. We're talking about endurance. This is what Paul is praying for the saints in Ephesians 3, that prayer that I mentioned to you. He says, listen to verse 16, chapter 3, that he would grant you, Paul's saying, God grant them this, that according to the riches of your glory, that they would be strengthened with all power through your spirit in the inner man. This, this inward fortitude, this inward endurance that is not simply there. Listen to me, we don't possess it. You don't have the fortitude to endure the schemes of the devil and all the ways that he can break you down. He knows your weakness and you're weak. We're all weak. It's in us all. We're so frail. We're so feeble. And if we put up the bravado that we're not, we're lying to ourselves and to everybody around us. And honestly, we're just proving how weak we are. And Satan knows exactly where to attack. He's no dummy. He is a formidable foe. Therefore, inner strength is required. Strength in the inner man. That's what Paul's praying for in Ephesians chapter three. And then he tells us where to get it. Verse, 
Verse 10 of chapter 6, what is the source of that strength as a believer? The immeasurable power of God through his spirit. That's it. And he gives us this imperative in 610. He says, be strong. He's not saying, be passive. He's saying, be strong. Be strong. This is not passive work. According to the verse, there are, there are two modifiers to our actions to be strong. Here's how we're strong. In the Lord and in the strength of his might. In the Lord and in the strength of his might. It's easy to identify those who are currently walking in the strength of the Lord and those who are not. It's easy to identify. Because the reality is we all grow tired. We all get weary in our walk, in ministry, in church life. We're all weak. We're all feeble. We're all going to wane. That's reality. And if you pretend that that's not true, again, you're lying to yourself. We all grow tired and weary. But those who are hoping in the Lord find strength to endure and press on. And those who are walking in their own strength begin to bow out. They begin to pull away. They begin to distance themselves from the church and they find ways to blame others for their inability to press on. But the truth is they simply ran out of their own strength. Do you wanna endure in relationships with me, with one another? If I'm gonna endure in relationship with you, I can't rely on my own strength. That relationship's gonna have a lot of friction in it because I'm gonna to begin to wane and I'm gonna grow weak and I'm gonna get tired and you're gonna annoy me. Or I can ask the Lord for help. I can go to him for strength and I can endure and you can endure. That's the only way. It's the only way. Why am I talking about relationships? Because that's exactly what Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter six. Husbands, wives, children, parents, masters, slaves, relationships, they matter and how we operate in them matters. They preach the gospel and we can't endure in those relationships apart from the gospel. If we don't have the strength of the Lord in us, we're going to wane and relationships will crumble. The text is plain. We're to be strong in the Lord. That's how they endure. Those walking in their own power will never endure. The only, only those who continue to hope in Christ will find strength and press on. The key to be strong is the, act, is the action found in the modifier, in the Lord. If you're not going to the Lord, you will not endure. You can't take a month off from the Lord and hope that you'll endure in relationships. Hope to endure in ministry fortitude. It just won't happen. We must hide ourselves in the Lord. We must, as was prayed several times, take refuge in him, run to him, lean into Christ. And when we do, the second modifier is realized, we realize that there's strength in his might. In our dependent trusting of the Lord, we are empowered to endure the fight as we observe the strength of the Lord and overcome that which could not possibly overcome on your own. Listen to these verses, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 9 and 10, probably familiar verses. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, 
for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, Paul says, I will boast, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Or Colossians chapter one, nine through 11. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. We must run to God. We must run to God or everything unravels. Saints, this is not new to any of you, but I implore you to go to the Lord again and be reminded of his boundless strength for your inner man. We must not only walk in a manner worthy and be strong in the Lord, but I want you to see we must also put on the armor of God. Look with me in verse 11, he says, put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand, stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the powers and against the world forces of this darkness and against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Before we dive into the actual pieces of armor that follow verses 11 and 12, let me just make some plain observations about the text. Number one, we're not to be partially armored. He says the full armor of God, he says it twice in this text. That's with good reason. I don't know how many of you watch the, the game of football, but if a football player's helmet comes off, does he stay in the game for a few plays without his helmet on? That'd be foolish, right? Nobody's gonna do that. He's gonna put his helmet back on because there's a lot of violent collisions and without that, he would be in danger. The text is very clear that we should put on the full armor of God. We can't leave a piece aside. We can't partially dress ourselves. It, it doesn't work. And the reason we do this is because the only way that we can stand firm against the schemes of the devil is if we are fully armed. The schemes of the devil, the enemy, he's made his own plans for the battle. He, he's a master strategist. He knows the weak points in your armor. He knows the weak points in who you are. There are schemes war, excuse me, waging war against us in this very moment, against you, your family, this church, and there are well-planned strikes at the heart of every individual in this room on a daily basis. And if we're not armed and protected, they can do tremendous damage. Let's speak on the subject for a minute. The reality is the church is under assault, not just by the world, but even from within. The way that Satan destroys churches, that, that's the two major ways. He, the, the church either invites the world in or the devil gets a foothold on the inside and corrupts from within. Marriages are under assault. Families are under assault, and it's always been this way. Satan is a tireless enemy, and though he has ultimately been defeated, he has not ceased to create confusion and doubt. 
He remains at work doing what the Bible says he does, stealing, killing, and destroying. And all that happens when we're not armored properly. He has schemes. We could name a few. Perhaps you're experiencing some of those in your life, the life of your family, in this church. What about blatant lies? That's what Satan uses. He just uses lies. What's not true? Spiritual pride, critical spirits, a harsh spouse, opposing wills, rebellious children, ethnic tension, political ideology, subtle divisions, selfishness, and we could go on and on and on with the schemes, and I don't know the half of them. But Satan knows how to wield them all with expertise. And the scripture tells us, verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. So often we think it's one another or somebody there or somebody out there or this guy or that guy. That's not it. It's against the rulers, powers, and forces of darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness. That's who we war against. That's where the battle is being raged. And I want you to be reminded, brothers and sisters, that no one, no man is your enemy. Though he or she may be a pawn used by the enemy's hand, he is not your enemy. We're not trying to outsmart, maneuver, or defeat another man. No person in this room is your enemy. There may be broken relationships. You may have been sinned against, but listen to me. Your brother is not your enemy. We are warring against the age-old foe And the full armor of God is what is required to thwart the schemes of the devil. So let's look at those pieces of armor briefly. Look with me in verse 13. He says, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Well, rather than talk extensively this morning on each piece of armor, I simply want to mention what I believe to be helpful insights to the armor as a whole. There's a helpful picture that I think Paul has painted for us in the wording here. The first call to suit up in the full armor is in verse 11, where the terminology is, you can see it in the text, put on, or the actual Greek means to sink into your garments. That's what it means to sink into your garments. And then in verse 13, the terminology is take up or raise up and carry. I think it's important, not just in the sequence or order, but also in the progression of our fight against the enemy, that we must sink into the protective armor of God, that is Christ himself, before we rise up in our full gear to fight against the enemy. Attempting to rise up too quickly without sinking into our protective provision of the Lord will hinder the firm footing needed to stand firm. I believe patience is the speed of progression when it comes to thwarting the schemes of the devil. You've seen the movies. Everybody can imagine some movie in your mind that you've watched over the years where the gung-ho sidekick goes unwisely rushing into battle, eager for the fight, right? He, his, his superpowers are a little bit less than the, the hero, right? And so he, he rages off into battle, ready to take on the enemy, eager for the fight. And what happens? He's defeated. He makes a blunder and then the hero has to swoop in and rescue him. In similar fashion, unfortunately, that's what happens all too often with 
many well-intentioned saints who rush into the fight having not adequately been prepared for the battle. These saints have not sunk into the protective armor of God and two, three, four, five years into battle, they begin to wane and they begin to receive those wounds. And rather than being protected in Christ, they begin to unravel, they begin to fall apart. Paul was sinking into the armor for three years before he began his ministry. God met him on the road to Damascus and then we don't see Paul for three years. Why? He was sinking into the protective armor who is Jesus Christ. He was becoming acquainted with Christ. This armor is put on in order that the saint may stand firm. The pattern repeats itself in the listing of the full armor. Look with me in verses 14 and 15. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. There's the putting on, the sinking down into and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Do you see the intentional language again? In verse 11, put on. In verse 14, put on. We are to put on truth and righteousness and the gospel of peace. This truth, righteousness, and gospel are essential to our ability to endure the fight of faith. If you're not putting on Christ, if you're not daily sinking into who Christ is, you're not prepared for battle. You're not prepared for battle. And when the battle comes and we take up the offensive, we find that we're lacking. But look with me in verse 16. We don't just put on, I said there's two pieces. The put on is the sinking down in. But verse 16 says, in addition to all, taking up, there's take up again. So verse 13, take up. Verse 16, take up. Taking up the shield of faith with which you would be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Again, though the individual parts, truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, God's word, they certainly have value by themselves. The verbiage of the text lends itself again to the actions taken by the saint, this putting on and this taking up, put on and take up. You can't take up until you put on. You have to put on before you can take up. The four pieces of armor mentioned in this text, if you look in the text, a lot of times we we know that Paul is quoting from the Old Testament and he's certainly doing that here as he begins to talk about the armor of God in Ephesians chapter six. He's referencing in all four of these references, the Old Testament references as he talks about the armor of God are prophecies from Isaiah about Jesus Christ. So when he says, to take up these four pieces of armor, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace and the helmet of salvation. Those are all prophecies of Christ and Isaiah. He's saying, put on Christ, clothe yourself with Jesus. But I want you to see, I said it's a sinking down into the garment. Is that not exactly what happens? The way we put on Christ is we put ourselves to death, put self to death. You sink down in that grave, and when you do, you put on Christ. And then when you raise up out of that grave, you have Christ on. Now you're ready for battle. But until you sink into that grave, you can't come out of that grave ready for battle. You must sink down. You must put on Christ before you take up these offensive weapons 
To say that more plainly, these pieces of armor of God are the person and work of Jesus. Jesus is the truth. He is our righteousness. He is the gospel. He is our salvation. That's what you're putting on. You're putting on Jesus. Sink into Christ, put on Christ, rest in him, and then you'll be able to stand firm in him. Paul says in the text, having done everything, and again, in addition to all, emphasizing the need to do all that is commanded here, primarily putting on the full armor of God. Don't skip anything, be thorough, be careful every day. And then he says this, the remaining two pieces not referenced in the Old Testament are faith and the word of God. According to Ephesians chapter three, he says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, this prayer that Paul prays to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. It is by faith that Christ dwells in your hearts. That is, after you have put on Christ, keep him on. By faith, Christ remains dwelling in your heart. This indwelling faith extinguishes the enemy's attacks. Isn't that what the shield of faith does? It extinguishes the enemy's attacks. So that when you're assaulted or when the church comes under fire, the shield is Christ in your heart. The enemy doesn't have room. When the devil schemes to create division among you, the only defense is, is Christ in your heart? When division or some other satanic evil arises in your life or in the life of the church, the reason is because the saints have not remained vigilant to put on the armor of God. You didn't put on your armor that day. You didn't go spend time with the Lord. Saints, we ought to be encouraging one another daily to fully suit up. Let me finish with this. Verse 18 says, this is the fourth final command. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times and with this in view, be on the alert. Well, those are the same. Pray and be on the alert. You want to be on the alert? Pray. The final command is simple. Be alert. Pray. Alertness is ceaseless prayer in the spirit. And here's what I want to do. I'm ending almost abruptly here. Just barely touching the fourth point because I want us to do what God commands us to do at the end of Ephesians here. I want us to intercede for one another. According to these final three verses, which I'll read. And then I want to quote from 1 Corinthians and we'll pray. This wasn't the normal plan. So when I conclude this, I'm going to invite us to grab a couple of microphones and anybody that wants to voice a prayer, we'll have a few minutes. You can voice a prayer in accordance with the sermon that's been preached. Ephesians chapter 6, 18 through 20 says this, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul echoes this 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I love the language he uses here. This alertness that he's talking about. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is what we'll conclude with and then we'll pray. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 13 and 14 says, Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Let's pray together.